0: So I read an interesting story this uh, past week and it's a story of a journalist uh, and how he became a journalist. He writes for a lot of different publications. He writes a blog, and he's got a lot of things going on. But it's a story about how he came to that profession. He's uh, When he was 14, his biggest thing in life was a sport of hockey. He played hockey. Everything to him was hockey. Life and death was hockey. And then he got hurt playing the game, and then he actually fractured a bone in his spinal cord. And thankfully, it wasn't a uh, big enough or bad enough fracture that it paralyzed him. But it was definitely uh, bad enough where he could no longer play the game again, and the doctor told him, You're never playing that game ever again. And so he was bedridden, kind of stuck to his chair in some ways for the next three or four months. And so what he said he did was kind of out of depression, out of basically a circumstance, he played World of Warcraft. And he played and apparently he got really good at it, like to be one of the best players in the U.S. 3v3 World of Warcraft, I have no idea what that means, but apparently he was really good. And he started getting sponsorship deals and people uh, were uh, coming out to him saying, hey, you should go pro, to the point he debated whether he should skip out on college altogether and then become a World of Warcraft game player. But as he was doing this again, because he was stuck to his computer, he realized what he also loved to do was to like, teach people how to be as good as he was at the game. And so he had a blog, and apparently it was one of the most read blogs in the United States on the World of Warcraft. Now, the point of the story is not that you should play games and that the games are to the keys to your future. It may be, most likely not, but it may be. But that for him, at some point, reality and life to him was hockey. It was all about the game. He wanted to play professionally. Apparently, he was pretty good. And he maybe would have had a chance to maybe think about going to college and playing in college and so on and so forth. But even more so than the thing that he got really good at as a result of the injury, which is the game, was the thing that he loved to do the most, more than hockey and more than World of Warcraft, was he discovered that his gift and his passion and his reality was the fact that he loved to teach and to help people through his writing, and so then he became a freshman writer, and apparently he's a pretty good one. His name is Nicholas Cage, I believe. No, Nicholas Cole, sorry. (laughs) Wrong name. (laughs) Nicholas Cole. For most, circumstances are always the thing that determine your reality. So if life is going well or life is going terribly, you think that is what is real and genuine in your life. If life is going great, that means life is great and everything is awesome. But if life is crappy and the things in your life aren't going the way that you are, you think the world is crumbling around you and everything is muck. But just like Nicholas Cole discovered in others, he realized that circumstance isn't reality. But reality is altogether something much more deeper to the core of who we are. Something so much greater than the circumstance we face day in and day out, year in and year out, and hopefully many, many years that you and I will live. Now we were studying, we've been studying the book of Ephesians for a little while, and I think this is what Paul is trying to say. That as he's writing this letter, he realized that in Jesus Christ, that he was living in a new reality, that no matter the circumstances... If we have the right glasses to see, we will see reality for what it actually is. If you remember, Paul at this point has been in jail. And he's been in jail for going on about five years, which is awful circumstance. Just about maybe the worst that you could possibly imagine. And again, jail in those times weren't like the jails in our times. They were literally a cinder block, a block of cement with a hole at the top and somebody would literally drop in your food and your water to you, and it was dark and musty all day long. That's the kind of prison he was in. But he realizes... Though he isn't in jail and in that type of prison going on five years, he realizes that in Jesus he might be the richest man in the world, And so he gets so caught up in the riches of the gospel, and in Jesus, he begins to write, and he writes this one really long run-on sentence that we'll find, and we'll read in a second here in Ephesians chapter one, verses 3 through 14. And in it he says, "In Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavens and in the earth." And then he goes on to write about the seven of the blessings that comes to his mind first. I think what Paul is trying to say, as we looked at last week, is that if we dare to understand our reality, that you and I will discover that you and I are so much richer than you and I think, realize, or dare to imagine. Imagine. And lastly, we uncovered the fact that we are rich because we are chosen and elected. That God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be his. He's adopted us as sons, as heirs of the kingdom. We understand what that means, that we go from the courtroom, him as our judge, to the living room, him as our father, and that to do this, he's redeemed us, he's released us from the bondage of sin through the blood that he sheds on the cross. And just those three things, I've been wrestling with it all week for me, Help me to realize just how rich we are in Jesus. And this week, we want to finish up with the rest of the section from verses 3 through 14 and uncover the last four of the seven blessings. And hopefully, again, you will go away from this place either believing that you are indeed so much richer than you think, so much richer than your circumstances may tell you you are because we have Jesus, and or you will go out of this place thinking, hmm, I wonder if what Pastor Pete is saying is actually legitimately true and that you would think about these words. So will you join me as we deep dive into the riches of the gospel that Paul describes in the, cha- in the, in the book of Ephesians and try to understand what it means to be in Christ and to know how that impacts our lives. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 14. As I said, if you're going to be with us for a little while, you should just mark that part in your Bible so it's really easy to open. And if not, the words, as always, will be on the screen. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Pastor Goose read the first two verses of this earlier, but we read the whole thing again. And again, I'm going to read it, I think, as Paul would have written it, which is very fast, without very much breathing, just because one really uh, long run-on sentence that he was very excited to write. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us all in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he proposed in him with the view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end, that he, we who are first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also then, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and jump right in. Father, would you help us to maybe sense and to feel the excitement, the overwhelming sense of I gotta say this right now, right here, as fast as I can, that Paul had and indeed help us to realize how indeed rich we are in you. that you would indeed reshape, reorient our reality and that we would walk out of this place continually realizing because of you we have a new reality. Our world isn't our circumstances, but it is indeed so much more and deeper than that. Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that listens. And may you speak to us, O Lord. And in listening and in knowing may we have life and life to the full, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, last week we looked at the first three blessings, chosen, adopted as sons, and redemption through his blood. The final four are as follows, don't have to write them down, we'll go over them one by one. Forgiveness of our trespasses, knowing the mystery of his will, obtaining an inheritance number six and seventh, sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. So first, or fourth, first of today, forgiveness of trespasses. Now, some people read this and they think forgiveness and redemption are the same thing. They're not. Though redemption in Greek, we talked about last week, means to release, to loose, right? Like to kind of untie a shoe in a very common sense, but more to release a slave, to undo a debt, that kind of a thing. Forgiveness in the Greek sense and what Paul means here is something totally different. To forgive is not to release because forgiveness is all about restoring a relationship. If someone commits a crime against you, Let's say someone vandalizes your home and steals from you. You may choose to release them from the guilt, right, from the crime that they paid and say, you know what, I'm not going to punish you for that. But you also then have a choice to restore that relationship, right? You can say, you know what, I'm not going to hold nothing against you for the things you did to me. But there's an extra step and that's forgiveness and that's to restore the relationship. Redemption is to release a person from their guilt, To take the loss upon yourself, saying, you don't have to repay me for none of it, but forgiveness is to redeem them, release them, pay the cost for them, but then also in forgiveness to restore the broken relationship by befriending them, loving them, maybe giving them a job, or welcoming them into your home, feeding them, whatever it may be. And we know Paul means this in the blessing because of the word he uses for trespasses. See, Paul could have used another Greek word, a more common word for sin. And that word in Greek, as Pastor Goose talked about a, a few weeks ago, about a month and a half ago, is to mean to miss the mark. Like if you're an archer and you're aiming for a target and you release, right, and then you miss the mark, that's kind of the way that a lot of the Greek people understood sin to be. There is a standard, there's a mark you want to get to, but if you miss it, that would be sin. But the word that Paul uses here is not that. The word trespasses or transgressions literally means to take a wrong step or to cross a line. Maybe you were like me when you were a little kid and you would kind of go, actually this doesn't really happen these days anymore because our parents and everyone's paranoid, but when I was a younger kid, I got to roam around our neighborhood, like our huge neighborhood, for hours and hours on end. And sometimes you would get to sections in the neighborhood and there's this big old sign that says, do not trespass, do not cross. And because I am me, I'd go up to me like, huh, probably shouldn't go over there. Nah, and then I would go anyway. That trespassing is a willful, I chose to disobey the thing that I saw and say, you know what, forget it, I'm going to go anyway. And so what Paul is saying is that one of the blessings, one of the things that we have, one of our riches is the fact that Jesus would not only release us from our sin but he would forgive us and take our willful disobedience, our willful sinning, things that we know we should not do, trespassing against what he says is good and right. And then he says, not only do I release you, pay for it on the cross, my blood is also the thing that restores that relationship. That we can trespass and go over the line as many times as we want. But if we so choose to receive him, Jesus says, I will restore that relationship. I'll probably talk about this a little bit, hopefully time willing, but there were, I got, I've been kicked out of my house and disowned by my parents a couple of times. The fact that my parents and I were spending Hurricane Harvey days locked up in our home making kimchi is a forgiveness of the trespasses, is a restoring of the relationship. Why? Because it says, it the restoring, the forgiveness of trespasses is the thing that makes God glad and joyful. He is one that restores a relationship, which means then that for you and I, if we have Jesus, no matter what you do, where you go, how you do it, not only will he release you from the bondage and from the pain and from the penalties of sin, he will also then say, come to me and I will restore that relationship with you. I don't know if you ever had a broken relationship, but to restore it is the greatest thing in the world. And one of our blessings we have is indeed that he restores those relationships. You are so much richer than you think or dare to imagine. Number five, in the second one of the day, it says that Jesus has made known to us the mystery of his will. God in Jesus has made known to us what I call the mystery of history. If you're here during the Revelation series, we talked about that a little bit, right? But the word mystery that Paul is referring to here in the book of vision is not referring to something that's like hidden that you can't find, like a mystery that you're not able to figure out, right? Something that you're not supposed to discover. No, mystery here means something that God has made known, wants to be known, but that you and I can't discover because we don't have the right glasses to find. It's like playing the game of clue. The answer is right there. It doesn't matter whether you're going to have the clues, right? You get it? Or the skills to find it or the key. And Paul tells us that it's been revealed, that the mystery of history has been revealed. And Paul is celebrating the fact that the mystery and the key to the mystery, we have the key. The key to the mystery of history, the reason why everything is the way that it is and the reason why everything will be the way that it's going to be, we have the key to knowing that. And he says the key is Jesus himself. That as long as we have the key or the relationship with the key who is Jesus, we will, through in. Jesus, we will know the mystery of history. Now, you might be saying, okay, Pastor Pete, what is the mystery of history? I'm glad you asked. I will tell you. Paul tells us that the mystery of history is that all things will be summed up in Christ. All of history will be summed up in Jesus. Everything, every sphere of life, everything you can think of, political, scientific, economic, social, moral, etc., everything will be summed up in Jesus. Other translations use this word united. The Greek word is anakephaleo. It's a compound word. You know I'm a nerd. I love compound words. If you don't know what a compound word is, it's when they take two words that are regular words along, or two or three words, and they mush them into one, to one compound multiple word. In this Greek word, anakephaleo, is the word kephalo, which is the Greek word for head. So literally, this word in Greek means to sum up under one head. There's an English word for that. Does anyone know what the word is? To sum up under one? No? It's the English word recapitulate. It's a sum up, right? And the reason why that word is the way is because it includes the Latin word caput, which is the Latin word for head. And so literally it means to sum up under one head, or the way that my professor taught it to me, it literally means to put the head back on. Has anyone ever seen a chicken running around with his head cut off? Have you ever seen it? It's actually possible. It's not a joke. If you chop the head off, well, oh, that's that's probably a bad motion to be doing on a sermon video. If you chop off the head of a chicken, it will still run around. Even though the nerves and things have been severed, it'll for whatever reason, I don't know the biology of science, it'll run around. And there's a phrase that if you're running around like a semi-insane person, you're running around like a chicken with his head cut off. Okay? It means that you don't have the thing that's most important, which is your brain and the thing that makes everything else work. You're running around like a mad person. Now you might be thinking, okay, cool story about the chicken pastor, but what does that have to do anything to do with the mystery of history? Well, here it is. Maybe today more than ever, it seems to me. I don't know how you guys see the world that you're living in. But maybe more than ever, I think every single day or every single week, at some point in the week, you're always saying things like, what in the world is going on? Why is our world like this? I'm not going on a political discourse, but we have right now in our country some of the more ridiculous things going on. We have a nation in Puerto Rico that is under so much hurt, and yet our president, and by the way, Puerto Rico is one of our, Places, right, that belongs to us as a as U.S. He's too busy arguing with football players about what they're doing with the anthem and whatnot. So we're just like, what is going on? And the violence and all the things, right? Everyone's asking, what is going on with the world? What is going on? Why are so many things so unthinkable and completely insane? And the answer to that and what the Bible tells us is that we are running around like a chicken with our heads cut off. Aiming aimlessly running around that apart from grace, apart from Jesus, apart from what he does, we are people without a head running around like a chicken without its head. And so the mystery of history that all things will be summed up, all things will be anakephaliod or recapitulated is to say that the mystery of history is to literally put the head back on the thing and to let everything run that we are supposed to. That Jesus is the head. And once the head is put back on the thing, our world, then it will actually go the way it was meant to go. But crazy enough, to put the head back on, we had to murder and crucify our Lord so he could rise back from the dead so that death could be no longer. That is to put the head, to sum up all things under Jesus. And I think Jesus... The head to which we are the body, little by little, I think day by day, little by little, through and by day, in each and every single day, when all it's being put back on. But the mystery of history, I think Paul tells us and that we know, is that one day the head will indeed be fully back on and everything will be indeed the way that it is. That Jesus, our crucified and our resurrected Lord and Savior, will indeed be king and all things will be the way that they're meant to be. We are so much richer than we think or imagine. Blessing number six, third of the day. Paul tells us that we have attained an inheritance. We talked about this a couple last couple weeks. That sons, that we have heir, we are heirs to the throne. But as heirs to the throne and to the kingdom, we are now sharers or partakers in the inheritance. The whole sentence that Paul's been writing has been kind of leading up to this, Right? That we're chosen, we're adopted, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, and all these things for what? So that we can get the inheritance of life that the king has promised to us. We're released, we're freed, we're forgiven, we're restored. We've been chosen and elected, we've been adopted as sons. We now know the mystery of history, that Jesus will be the head of all things. And in all those things, we get to share the thing that God has been wanting to give to us the entire time. Now, if you're a nerd like me and you study this verse, many will argue who gets the inheritance, right? Some say that it's God who gets the inheritance, which kind of makes sense, and some say it's us. But I think the way that Paul wrote the sentence, which is to be very vague and not really specific in anything, is to say that both of us get the inheritance. And it makes sense to me. Because God then... In adopting us and having us and releasing us and restoring us in forgiveness, he inherits and possesses us, men and women, sons and daughters in Christ. He's paid the cost. He's freed us and he's adopted us. He's given us a new identity, a new, rea- a new reality, excuse me, and a new relationship. And as such, because God is a good God, he starts to then invest into his inheritance. He starts to give you the blessings of the Holy Spirit. He starts to give you life and joy. It's like an owner of a sports team. When they buy a new sports team, the first thing they do is they start to pour stuff into their team. Why? So their team can win the championship. You start to go acquire the best players and the best GMs and all these different things. Or a new homeowner. I just bought a home. And I've had to try really hard. My wife and I have to try really hard to try not to buy literally everything we can find to put into our new home. Because, oh, we got a new space. We didn't have that before. Let's put this in there. But generally what you do when you get something new is that you invest into it. You invest into your new possession, into your new inheritance, to make it yours, to make it be the blessing that it is indeed to you. And for God, he invests into us, and as we learned before, so that we may be a blessing out into the world. And that we may all share, and everyone can become sons and daughters. But of course, we share in the blessings, right? It's why I'm here. It's why I hope... Y'all are here. That we get the blessing of being sons and daughters of God. That in times of trouble, you get strength, courage, and hope. You get love. You get community. Daily, you get grace. You get hope. You get joy. A new family. All these things our blessings, our inheritances, and possessions that we get through Jesus now, and of course, forever and ever and ever, when one day, forever, all pain, all hurt, all sickness, and everything else will get wiped away, including death, replaced by an unending and unimaginable joy and life. Man, you, we, so much more richer than we think. Or dare to imagine the last blessing that Paul talks about sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise Paul says that when we believed when we said yes and we followed Jesus our inheritance then was sealed this sealing is talking about a deal a financial transaction my beloved friend Victor over there just recently became a professional engineer when you first, by the way, if you get an engineering degree, let me just put it out there. If you get an engineering degree and you get a job, you're an engineering in training. And it kind of sounds demeaning, but it doesn't really mean anything, apparently. But apparently you got to take a test. And then once you get and take the test and you pass, you get a little certificate. And it tells you that you are a professional engineer. And, what the, and the cool thing about it is you get a stamp. You legit get a stamp. And now Victor can go and look at a project and say, I, as a professional engineer, I seal this project. It is engineeringly good. Like it's like, it's, it works, Okay. So whenever you get a status or something, you can seal it. Any deal that you make, anything that you buy, if you go buy a car or something big, right, or if you're making a deal with your friends, you generally have a thing that you have to seal. Back in the olden times of, you know, Korea or just many nations, everyone had like a family seal. And to make something legit, you had to seal it. Today, we have to sign it, right? Without the seal or the authentication or the sign, it means nothing, right? So what Paul is telling us is that when we believed, when we became sons and daughters, God authenticates, he verifies, he solidifies the deal. Not with a stamp, but as he says in here, with himself, the Holy Spirit. And the cool part is that the Holy Spirit then gives a pledge, is a pledge of the inheritance that received. The word pledge is the Greek word Arabon. Which literally means down payment and first installment. Let me school you youngins on what this is like. Some of the older ones in here know what this is. If you go buy a car, and hopefully one day you'll get an opportunity to buy a car, if your parents buy you a car, by the way, it's not cheap, okay? When you go buy a car, whether it's a $5,000 car, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, or beyond, right? Generally, you don't have the money or all of it in one fell swoop to buy it like that, right? If you do, cool for you. Most people, they don't. So what you do is you go and say, I want that car, and the person says, I'm going to sell you that car for this price. Let's just say $25,000 to make the math easy or the number easy. But I don't have $25,000 right off the bat. So you go and you say, you know what? I will give you a portion of that, a down payment, a thing that says, I will make sure that I pay for this car through and through, and that in the end, you who are selling me this car will get the $25 that you're owed because this thing is worth $25,000. So normally, you have to put down a down payment. When I bought my house, or when I asked them to build my house, they said, you need to put an earnest down payment. That's basically saying, don't flake. Don't tell me to build a house, and then tell me later in the middle that you don't want the house no more. Okay? And so you have to put a down payment, and then you put a first installment, which is the very first payment of the series of payments. If I owe $20,000 to the car payment or whatever, I got to pay the rest of it in Installments. Are you starting to get the math? Does it make sense to you? Have I gone whoop right over your heads? Hopefully not. Or let's say I wanted to sell you my Ultra Boost or my Yeezys and you only had 20 bucks and you owe me 200 now. I'm like, okay, for the next year, 10 months, I'll just make it easy, 10 months, you gotta pay me 20 bucks every month. The 20 is a down payment, the rest of them are installments. You get it? But this is how financial dealings work, okay? And basically, the reason why you do the down payment in the first installment is because if either party flakes on the deal, then they have a backup. So if the person is going to want to sell me the car, and I got to go, and I pay the down payment in the installment, and something's wrong with the car, or they don't give me the car, they have penalties for that. Back in the Greek days, if the seller didn't give me what I was owed, they would pay me twice the down payment that I paid. Does that make sense? So if I said, you know what, I want to buy that car and I'm going to give you $5,000 and the first installment, which is like $2,000 or whatever, and I gave them $7,000 and they go, you know what, we sold this car yesterday, sorry. Then they go, well, you owe me $14,000 on top of the $7,000 that I paid. Does that make sense? That's the penalty for not coming through on the agreement that we signed upon, that we sealed and authenticated. My end, as the buyer, if I say, you know what, I'm going to buy that car, I'm going to give you this money, but in the end I go, you know what, I actually don't want the car, you can keep it, then guess what, I lose my down payment, that's my penalty. That's what I give to them. So here's what Paul is saying, because this word out of in Greek is actually that financial thing. That when we believed and we said yes to Jesus, and we say we follow him, God not only releases us, right? Not only redeems us, then forgives us, restore the relationship to make all that indeed happen. To say that we're sons, that we're chosen, that we know the mystery of history and all these things. God has to authenticate. He's got to seal the deal with himself. And though it will never happen, because God can't do these things because he's unable to not be perfect. If he ever were to back out on this deal, he would have to give twice the pledge, which is the Holy Spirit. Twice the blessings, twice the joy, twice the life, twice all these things, which is why Paul will say, "Bless you." You are so much more richer than you think and or imagine. Now, I've I'm given you a lot of information today, and maybe with all the information I've given you, you're probably like, "I don't really feel all that rich." Cool. God restores relationship, cool, but you're still putting it in terms that's hard for me to understand. I I debated this week whether I wanted to share this portion of my life story with you because to me, this is where it makes most sense. I told you earlier that my dad had disowned me a couple times in my life. The last time, the most previous and also the last time he did it, the last time, was when I told him that I was going to be a pastor and I was going to a go seminary and not go to law school. He was devastated. And by the way, you, you all know how this story ends. My dad was just here for my ordination a little while ago. And again, when we were stuck in our home with Hurricane Harvey because we couldn't get out of our house because we were flooded in. Our house wasn't flooded, but the water was coming up the driveway. My dad and I were inside of our house making kimchi together. Okay, so we're good. We're doing—and the kimchi is delicious, and I'm still eating it. So, But he disowned me because I told him that I wasn't going to go to law school and that I was going to go to seminary and become a pastor. And then he said, okay, get out. You're not my son anymore. Clearly, the relationship is broken. It came a time when I was was trying to build that relationship back up after I had gone to school and I was in Vancouver and I was dating Christina. We weren't married yet. She She didn't know how crazy my family was yet. Long story short, my dad got into another thing. I was trying to become a citizen. I was still not yet a citizen. If you don't know, I was born in Korea. I'm not actually a US born citizen, but I'm a citizen now. But. And I was in Canada and I had to come back to the US to do all these things. And my dad just got really upset because he's like, and I told him because I couldn't. I couldn't miss another week of school. I didn't have the money to fly back and all these things. And long story short, I realized that my dad and I didn't have a relationship. I realized that my life was really broken, it was really poor. I realized that in, in, in the way things were, I didn't have anything that I could really stand upon and say my life is good. Because I didn't have a relationship with my dad, and yet here I am, I'm calling calling myself a pastor, I'm a seminary student, and worst of all, I didn't even love my dad, I actually hated the guy because of the way that my life had gone up to that point. So broken and utterly just devastated, I finally said, God, you got to fix this. If you are the God I think you are, And if indeed the life that you say you're going to give me and that I'm supposed to have in you, then you have to fix this because life is not supposed to be like this. I'm not supposed to love my dad like this. I'm not not supposed to know my dad like this. this is not the way we're supposed to be. I said, you fix it. And then he said, okay. He said, get in your car, drive over to Virginia. It was Sunday night. I had to be in court to get sworn in to be a citizen Thursday morning you don't know, to drive from Vancouver. a Geography lesson, Virginia, where I used to live, is on the East Coast, Washington, D.C. Hopefully that'll help you. Vancouver's right above Seattle, Washington, way on the Western Coast. That's a 4,000-mile trip. It takes 40 hours of driving at extreme speeds to get there. Do the math. I left Monday morning, okay? God said, get in your car, go home, apologize to your dad and beg for forgiveness. My friend, Paul, who many of you have met, he was a speaker not too long ago at one of our retreats, and my wife, then girlfriend, said, you're crazy. And I said, well, God says to go, and I'm going to go. And they said, okay, I'll pray for you. I went. 40 hours of driving. I finished it in 50 hours. I got to Virginia Wednesday Sorry, we had Wednesday afternoon before traffic, went to the car dealership, fixed up my car, because I was going to give that to my dad too, and then also, because he had paid for the car, thinking that I was going to become a lawyer, and then I had to pay for it, and I stopped paying for it, because I'm lazy, but it was underneath his name. He signed the deal. Well, I didn't even realize it. He signed the deal, so he was on the hook for that, anyway. And then I got home, and then I walked in the door, and he looked at me, and he, as he would, he looks at me, and he goes, how'd you get here? And then I go, I drove. And he goes, well, that was stupid. You could have called me and I would have picked you up from the airport, and I said, no, I drove. He's like, what do you mean? I drove from Canada to the States. Here's the car keys, take them. I don't want them anymore. Along the whole drive, I practiced a speech that I was gonna tell my dad. My Korean was awful back in those days. I was super nervous. My dad doesn't speak very much English, or he refuses to anyway, and so I knew I had to speak to him in Korean. So I walked in and I said, Dad, I have something to say to you. Would you please not interrupt me until I'm done, and then you can say whatever you want. And he goes, okay. So I sat down and I said this, basically in Korean. I said, Dad, I'm sorry, because I've hated you for 24 years. I've hated you for everything you've done, for the way you've treated me, for all the relationships you've had, for all the brokenness you put me through. But I realize that in being a Christian and being someone who calls himself a follower of God, that I didn't love you. I've always expected you to love me, but I never thought that I had to love you. And so I'm sorry for that. Will you forgive me? I want to start and make this relationship because I want this to be a blessing that I have in my life. I want this to mean something more than what it is now, which is nothing because I hated you up until yesterday. And so if you will... Imagine that our life is like a story being written on a page. We'll take every single page from here on out and we'll throw it in the trash. And we'll start to rewrite our story blank from this page onward. And I hope and my prayer and my, my, my desire is to love you and to have a relationship with you. Somehow I said that all in Korean. And I think I said it okay because he understood me. And then he looked at me and he goes, you finished? I was like, mm-hmm. And he goes, okay, first of all, you could've killed yourself, you're a stupid person for driving. Second, do you really want me to sell your car because that means you don't have a car and when I sell it, I'm gonna sell it and you're not gonna have it back. And I was like, yeah, sell it. I can't pay for it, you're just paying for it. I've only paid for a little bit of it and I can't pay for it anymore. I'm a poor, broke grad student and I can't pay for this car anymore. And also the gas in, Canadi- in Canada, Canada is super expensive. It's over $6 for a gallon, and my car had to take premium. Take it. Don't want it. Okay. And then third, he goes, thank you for your words. I'm sorry for the way that I wasn't able to love you the way that you needed to. I never knew how. No one ever taught me. I'm sorry I never came to any of your games or your concerts or your anything that you wanted me to be there. I didn't know how. I was too busy working not an excuse. I'm just telling you that I'm sorry. And if you forgive me, then yes, let's start over and let's rewrite the story. So at this point, I'm feeling pretty good about myself, going, ooh, that went a lot better than I thought. Because my dad could have said, no, forget it. I'm not doing it. And then he looks over at my mom, who's standing there in the corner. And mind you, my mom now, I love her to death, but if you don't know, she's my third mom, my dad's third wife. She's standing over there nervously in the corner because these interactions between my dad and I don't go so hot most of the time. And then my dad looks at her and says, bring it. Bring it. Excuse me? Bring it. And she's like, what? She's like, just bring it. She's like, oh, okay, okay. And then she walks over to this area and then she gets this little box and I'm wondering like what in the world is going on. It's a little tiny little white box. It's still in my closet. For some reason I I hold uh, snow, like uh, ski goggles in there. I don't know why. But it's still there. And he puts it on the thing, and he goes, open it. You what? Open the box. Oh, okay? It's like a movie. So I took two hands. I was so nervous. I took two hands. I was like... And I lifted it like this, and I'm looking, you know, like this. And as soon as I open it, it's a box about yay big, full of cash. Lots of $100 bills in there. Came out to $15,000. What is this? He goes, this is every last penny you've paid for your car when I used to pay for it. I've had your mom cash every single one of your checks and put it in this box because you're going to need it when you get married so you're not a broke college student or a grad student and you can actually love your wife properly. If you can imagine the scene, I lost it. I was trying to hold it together, but I couldn't hold it together anymore. And then my dad said these words, and this is the reason why I tell you this story. He said, I'm sorry that I never knew how to love you the way you wanted me to. The only thing that I knew was to work as hard as I could and to provide everything for you so that you could be everything that I think and that I know that you can be. It means all I knew was to make money and to pay for the things that you needed to be successful in life. But it also means that I wasn't ever there for any of the things that you really wanted. I'm so sorry. Hopefully you'll realize that I didn't mean it, but it doesn't mean that I didn't do that I did a good job. See, in that moment, reality was that I thought that I had a negligent, terrible father who didn't give a you know what about me. And that I was being the bigger person and trying to love him and try to build a relationship. And in the entire time, I just realized that I didn't have the right glasses to see that my dad loved me. With every ounce of his being and his whole life was dedicated so that I could be what he thought I was supposed to be. And it required a perspective change, a blessings change, a richer-than-you-think change for me to realize. And all of us, what I'm telling you is that we in Jesus have that. All you might need to do is open up the box or put on the glasses to realize that you are so much richer than you think and or imagine. You just may not realize it. We're going to spend a little moment and we're going to pray for our friend James Yang. I don't know if you know him. He's a second year or a sophomore at UT. His best friend, his best friend since he was little EA big, uh, Owen, his roommate. Um, his dad passed away of cancer this past week. It's really rough for him. We've been praying for him all week. But the reason why we're going to pray for Owen, we're going to pray for James, but something remarkable happened this week. I get texts from him at around 12.30, and he's asking questions about, hey, why does good things happen to bad people? Can you tell me once more? I know you've told me many, many, many times, but I need you to tell me just one more time why things like this happen. I didn't even get the text. I was already asleep. I'm an old man. I go to sleep before 12. I woke up the next morning, and then I started, I prayed, and I texted him. And then eight or nine or 10 hours later or something like that, however long the story is, he texts me, and he goes, read this. And if you don't know, James has started a website and teaches you how to play basketball because he's a phenomenal basketball player. But in this one time, he was not teaching anything about basketball. And he wrote, I I encourage you to go read it. It's James Bunball, J-A-M-E-S-B-U-N-Ball.com. He wrote one of the most articulate and amazing stories and amazing reflections about death and the pain of it and who God is and how we deal with those sort of things. And I looked at him and I said, bro, you might have just found your life's passion if you're willing to pursue it. And he goes, I only reiterated or said what you've always taught me. And I said, no, 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 you may think that, but those are your words coming from your heart, and I could not have written that piece. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, if you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, regardless of whatever your circumstances may look like right in this very moment, if you're willing to look a little deeper, if you're willing to search a little harder and maybe open your eyes or put on some new glasses or open the box that's been sitting right in front of you, I guarantee you, you will discover that you are far richer than you dare think, dare imagine, or dare to know. And may you, in and through the gospel, that our Lord Christ, that our God who created us Would come to this place, though we didn't deserve it, and love us the way he does, die for us the way he does, and rise again so we do not have to die ever, and really that we will live forever and ever in joy and in goodness and in hope with perfection forever and ever, then you will realize that you are so much richer than you dare to think, dare to imagine, or dare to realize. Will you put on the glasses? Will you open the box? And I pray you will. And so as I invite the praise team back up, and as we finish, I'm going to take a moment. We're going to pray. Even if you don't know him, we're going to pray for Owen and his family. Pray for James as he's helping Owen through this time. And also, I want to give you a chance to respond. I don't know what the circumstances are like in your life right now. I don't. For some, I do. For some of you, I don't. And if you are a normal group of human beings that exist in the world, some of you, your circumstances are great right now. Some of you, your circumstances are are whatever. They're just kind of like day-to-day. You don't really notice. And some of you, your circumstances are absolutely horrifying and terrible. Wherever you are, may you witness and realize that in the gospel, that in Christ you are actually far richer than you think and or feel or imagine. You just need a perspective change, a glasses change, a vision rearranging And I pray and I hope with all earnesty that you would seek God and ask him to help you to put new glasses on and realize just how rich you are. So will you go and spend a moment? Reflect. Take a look. What are the glasses you need to put on? What are the boxes you need to open? Whatever it is, what is it that you need to do to realize and may you go before our King, our God, our Father, and our Lord and say, Jesus, will you show me? So let's take a moment and respond. Again, I remind you, pray for James, pray for Owen and his family, and also then pray for yourself as you respond. And then Chris and the crew will lead us out in worship.